book of Isaiah, chapter 41. We're actually in Leviticus, and we'll get back there. But before we get into our study this morning, I need to remind you that the Bible was not conceived of, nor was it crafted by man. And it's uh, critically important that we understand every word of every sentence, of every paragraph, of every page of Scripture is God-breathed. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All Scripture is inspired by God. God breathes, which is a pretty bold statement, unless it's true. But let me give you a little more foundation for this book, because there are all kinds of religious books out there that claim to be from God. Only one has the audacity to proclaim prophecy. Of all the religious writings out there, only one, and it's the Bible. The Bible students know that more than a third of this book, more than a third is prophecy. And of that one-third of prophecy that is in the Bible, over 50%, has already been fulfilled, and the rest, it is indicated by Scripture, will be fulfilled in the end times, which I believe we are waiting in right now. No other religious book has the audacity to make, again, such prophetic claims. And I want you to hear from the Bible itself, from the Lord Himself, quoted in Scripture, Isaiah chapter 41, verse 21. This will be familiar to some of you. We've read it often, but it's so important. Listen. Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments, the King of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome. Or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward, that we may know that you are God's. Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. Behold, you are of no account, and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. Flip over to Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah 44 and verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and there is no God beside me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order, from the time that I established the ancient nation. And let them declare to them the things that are coming, and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble, and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you, and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me or any other rock? I know of none. And skipping over to chapter 46. Chapter 46. Verse 9. God again speaking says, Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. This book is unlike any other. Our God is unlike any other. And it's important we understand this, because this book and our God always deal with the truth. Even when the truth is not easy to hear. It's always absolute. And I tell you this because I want that to be clear this morning before we get to the teaching. 
I want you to understand I didn't make this stuff up. I want you to understand this is not some personal sicko bias of bricks. Now you're thinking, what in the world are we going to study today? Leviticus chapter 12. Look in your Bibles back there. Leviticus chapter 12. Beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, When a woman gives birth and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days. As in the days of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 33 days. She shall not touch any consecrated thing, nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks as in her menstruation, and she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 66 days. When the days of her purification are completed for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. Okay, realize what's going on here. She just gave birth to a child and she is to bring a sin offering. We're all celebrating and bringing the pink and the blue balloons and we're down at the hospital saying hi to the new folks and looking at the new baby going, well, what do you do? And God's saying, bring a sin offering. Read on. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her and she shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, whether a male or a female. But if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, the one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her and she will be clean. Father, we need understanding of this one today. Lord, I pray that you will give us patience to walk through this study. To seek out it, to truly understand your word, and not to, not to jump ahead of you, Lord. But to ask you to take us step by step. And help us to understand what exactly is going on here. Father, we just studied chapters about unclean animals, and suddenly we come to childbirth, and there's this statement of it being unclean. And this is hard for us in this culture especially to understand. So I pray that you'll illuminate this for us. Help us to understand your word, your scriptures, and Father, ultimately, and most hopefully, to be touched deep in our hearts at your amazing plan of salvation. Holy Spirit, teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Leviticus 12 deals with a woman having a baby, and once she's had that child, she's immediately declared unclean. And if she had a boy, she was unclean for seven days. If she had a girl, she was unclean for 14 days. Why the difference? Well, verses 2 and 3 tell us. On verse 2 it says, when she gives birth and has a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days. In the days of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. The difference between the male child and the female child is circumcision. The male child could be circumcised, the female child could not be circumcised. And circumcision is that sign between God and man of his covenant. 
And it's an important sign. Genesis 17 verse 10. God is speaking to Abraham. He says, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and between you. Now you may recall this, but circumcision is the memorial sign between the Lord and His people Israel. It's not a sign for the church. You may can relax. It's between the Lord and Israel. And the eighth day is when circumcision was ordained to happen. Well, the eighth day is also a couple of other things. It's the day of new beginnings. For the eighth day, if you count up from the first day of the week, the next time you hit the number eight, it's actually the first day again. Jesus resurrected on the first day of the week. The day of circumcision is the day of resurrection. It's the day the first century church chose to meet for those reasons, because it is a day of new beginnings. But it's also interesting just medically, medically, that on the eighth day is when the blood begins to truly start clotting. So it's the safest day for a child to be circumcised. The Lord has great wisdom in what he's doing. And there are great health reasons for the days of purification. A woman who has childbirth, and there is all the bleeding and all that goes along with that. So the Lord is saying you need to stay back and you need to stay away. And we don't want to, you know, messes and problems and we don't want disease. It's a time where disease can happen. Cheryl, after the birth of our third child, got E. coli. It was frightening. We got home, had Hayden there. We had come home here to bring the child home and said, everything just is new and fresh. And Cheryl was shaking like a leaf. She had a fever of 101. We called the doctor and said, give her Tylenol. I'm looking at her. She was shaking so bad, her teeth were chattering. And we went immediately back down to the doctor. They put her back in the hospital. And she was there for a week as they treated her. They didn't even know what it was at first, giving her IV antibiotics until three, four days into it when they had done the test and found out it was the E. coli virus. You see, disease can happen. It is dangerous. Even in third world countries today, especially, the rate of childbirth, of death in childbirth is, is awful. And so the Lord declares some things, some health reasons. Women, when you have a child, you need to be set apart with a male child for seven days, with a female child for 14 days. Now, what does that have to do with health? It has probably nothing to do with health. It's more of a spiritual thing that we'll get to in just a moment. But in Leviticus 12, God is declaring something, again, that is difficult for us in the modern world to embrace. The primary reason a woman was unclean at childbirth is this. She was bringing a sinner into the world. When a woman gives birth to a child, she is bringing a sinner into the world. Verse 6, when the days for purification are completed for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. A sinner has entered the world. Now, Jeff was passing out communion with his bundle of joy, you know, wrapped right there against him. And I noticed because Penelope was smiling from ear to ear as her husband was passing communion. There's, there's you know, little, little Jaden, you know, his first time to help passing out communion. And it was precious and it was beautiful, but we need to understand that this wasn't a grain offering that was offered when a woman gave birth. It wasn't a grain offering. It wasn't a peace offering. It wasn't as though she was going to offer the Lord to share this joy of the new birth. A grain offering, she'd be thanking God for the fruitfulness. That might be a good reason to have a grain offering there. It wasn't even a birth offering as a covering for the newborn. It was a sin offering because sin was involved. What do you mean? 
David says the following in Psalm 51 verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Well, does that mean David's parents were adulterous? Is that what we're talking about? No. It's not saying that in sin she conceived. It literally means from the moment of conception, David says, I was sinful. In the womb, I had a sin nature. And this is Foundational Theology 101. It's the doctrine of the depravity of man. We live in a world that says man is basically good. If left to his own devices, man will do good things. We will evolve to higher species. We will grow into a better people. And as we've said so many times in in kind of poking a hole in evolution, are we evolving to a better people? Is this a more peaceful world? Are we doing better here in 2005 than we were doing in the 90s or the 80s or the 70s or further back? Or is the world a more violent place, a more sinful place? Are we devolving, I think is probably the better word. Again, we're not only born in sin, we were conceived in sin. And you might want to jot this down, it's a great phrase. Man is not a sinner because he sins. Man sins because he is a sinner. Let me say that again. Man is not a sinner because he sins. Man sins because he is a sinner. Romans 5.12 Paul says, Just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sinned. And Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 Paul says, We were by nature children of wrath. When a baby is born, they are born already with a sin nature. So are you saying, Rick, that if an infant dies, they are lost because they're born with a sin nature? Absolutely not. Matthew chapter 10, or chapter 18, verse 10 says, See that you do not despise, Jesus speaking, one of these little ones. For I say to you that there are angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. I, I love this epitaph. A man by the name of Robert Robertson, as quoted in J. Vernon McGee's commentary, lost four infant children. Four infants died. And on their gravestone, he wrote the following. Listen closely. He said, Bold infidelity, turn pale and die. This, beneath this stone, four infants' ashes lie. Say, are they lost? Or saved. If death is by sin, they sin, for they died. But if heaven is by works, they can't appear. Reason how to pray. It reverses the Bible's sacred page, but the knot's untied. Listen. They died for Adam's sin. They lived for Jesus died. They died for Adam's sin. With the sin of Adam and Eve, death entered the world. And every human being born after that, bore that sin nature, every human being but one, that would be Jesus. Interesting thing, you know that the mother's blood and the baby's blood, they don't connect. That there's, there's a barrier between the blood of the mom and the blood of the child in the womb. And yet, Jesus would have, if he was like the rest of us, in every way would have inherited that sin nature. I believe blood-born all the way back from the beginning. And yet he had no father to pass that blood along to him of earthly origin, did he? His father was the Holy Spirit. He was miraculously conceived in Mary. 
And Jesus, furthermore, he says about little children, he called for them, Luke 18, 16, and said, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. So children are not sinners? Oh, they're sinners. They just don't know it yet. They just haven't come to that place of full knowledge of their sin. They're not yet accountable because they don't know any better. Wisdom, discernment, accountability, that is trained into children. That is learned. That is given to them. That's your responsibility, moms and dads, to train up your children, to teach them. And so I want to make three applications quickly this morning in Leviticus 12. And the first one is a parental application. Psalm 127 verse 3 tells us that children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. But Rick, if you're saying that children are born sinners, that childbirth brings sinners into the world, aren't you saying that children are a bad thing to have? Not in the least. Every soul that enters the world is precious to the Lord. Every child born, though they have the sin nature, is loved by God, precious to God, desired by the Lord, which is why the sin nature is so abhorrent to Him. Because He wants nothing more than every soul to be with Him. And why specific intervention on the part of God is so necessary in our lives. He hates sin. And parents, you are the early introducers of God's intervention. It does fall to you. You have that responsibility. It has taken me years to understand that. Years to draw into that fact that I am responsible to teach, to train up, to lead my children in the way of the Lord. That the church isn't going to do it for me. The school is certainly not going to do it for me. Other people are not going to... Whose responsibility are my children? Mine. My responsibility. Now... Far too much Christian parenting today is left to happenstance. So let me be clear to you about one thing that you need to know as a Christian parent. Your children, your children, sweet, lovely, wonderful as they may sometimes seem, are stinking little sinners. (laughs) J. Vernon McGee said, you think you brought a sweet little flower into the world? In fact, you brought a stinkweed. A little sinner. Now, if you're still having a hard time with this idea that a child is born sinful, that the sweet little child, maybe that you're holding in your arms or that Jeff was holding close to him a few moments ago, if an innocent child, give him a few nights. (laughs) Give him a few months or a few years. Watch what happens. Leave them to their own devices. See what they do. I don't have to prove to you that kids are born sinful. They'll do it. They don't need my help. But what's interesting to me is even the first mom thought her child would be innocent. Eve thought her firstborn was going to literally be the Savior. Did you know that? Eve thinking about this firstborn in the nine months of of the pregnancy, processing it through, and then in the moment, what was the first thing out of Eve's mouth when her firstborn son was born? Genesis 4, chapter 4, verse 1 says, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And that's a poor translation. Now, Cain's name literally means gotten. That's where Cain came from. I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. But he spoke three words. I think it's all she could get out during the birth process. Just these three words. In the Hebrew, Cana, Ish, Yehovah. 
Tena Ish Yehovah, which literally translated means, I have gotten a man, the Lord. I've gotten a man, the Lord. Remember, it wasn't long before that that the, the father said to the serpents, Hey, listen up, I'm going to put in between, between your seed and her seed. Telling Eve right in that moment, you're going to have a seed. A seed is going to come through woman, and this seed is going to crush the head of the serpent. And so Eve gets pregnant, and she's about to give birth, and she's thinking, this is great. The Savior, I have gotten a man, the Lord, birthed through me to save us from this serpent. Eve apparently thought Cain was going to be her Savior. But Cain was far from the Savior, and it didn't take Eve long to figure that out. And I'm not talking about Cain murdering Abel. I'm talking about way before that. I'm talking about before Abel was born. Eve had figured out that Cain was sinful by nature. Well, how do you know that? Well, Genesis chapter 4 verse 2 tells us that again she gave birth to his brother Abel. Apparently, by the time Abel was born, Cain had already been showing his sinful stock because the word Abel, Abel, the name Abel means vanity or emptiness. You could nickname him Ben. could have called Abel Ben, for Ben there done that. I've had a child. I've seen what the child does. I'm now having another child. Emptiness. Vanity. This isn't going to be any different. Now, if you think he's being a little negative... Just think about being a mom, mothers, being the only mom who had ever lived. With no one to ask, no books to read, no shows to watch, nothing. You're on your own, kiddo. Have a child. Good luck. And so her second son, Abel. Abel, emptiness. Parents, we need to be honest. Our little children, our little angels, are not exactly angelic. They have a sin nature. We don't have to teach them how to lie. We don't have to teach them how to steal. We don't have to teach them how to be selfish. They get that all by themselves. And they do it really well. And so do we. Proverbs 22, verse 6 tells us, So train up a child in the way he should go. And even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Why? Because the way he should go is not the way he normally goes. Not the way he naturally goes. Not the way she tends to choose to go. And so the Lord says, You train them in the way they should go. Reality check. As much as I love my kids, Corey, Hannah, and Hayden, as proud as I am of them, they are little sinners just like me. Just like me. They've got their father's nature. They sin as well. Well, this has great parental impact. Proverbs 22, verse 15 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. And Proverbs 13, 24 tells us, He who withholds the the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. We're talking about the application of the Board of Education to the seat of learning. (laughs) This whole idea in in parenting of not spanking the child is unbiblical. And if you want to argue with me about it and and get into the whole how do you parent a child and what you're supposed to do and timeouts versus spanking, hey, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. That the parent who withholds his rod, who withholds corporal punishment, hates the son. Well, I don't hate my children. I just give them timeouts. I don't hate them. No, but you will. You will. 
as they tend to go further and further off, as they tend to get to that place where you can't reach them even if you wanted to, corporal punishment is biblical, my friends. There's a reason it's called child rearing. Let you think about that. (laughs) The Bible tells us those the Lord loves, He disciplines. If you love your kids, parents, discipline them. Show them the way they are to go. Well, I don't want to be abusive. I'm concerned about being angry. Hey, if you're angry, you take a time out. And then come back and biblically discipline. Don't discipline out of control. Don't be abusive. I'm not talking about that. But corporal punishment is biblical when used in a biblical way, a loving way. I didn't understand this, but thinking back, when we first had Corey and, and he was little, and, and I was trying to figure out spanking for the first time, he did some things that just made me mad. And all I wanted to do is he was running his little body by, I would just swat him into next week, and you know, I'm feeling this way. And then I thought back to my own dad, who would come into my room, snapping his belt as he walked down the hallway. I hated that sound. I mean, it was worse than the spanking, wasn't it? For those of you who got the belt, it was worse. But my dad did something that at the time I thought very strange, but later I came to understand. He would spank me, and then he would lift me up into his lap and hug me and hold me until I was done crying. Corporal punishment done in love. I never doubted whether or not my dad loved me. I did doubt whether whether I'd make it into the next week, but I never doubted his love for me. Parents, you know your children are prone to sin. They have a sin nature. They will sin, so train them up in the way they should go. It takes courage. It takes energy. It takes intentionality. But I ask, is the little soul worth eternity? God thinks so. He thinks so. And it's his desire that all children are saved. Well, there's a parental application to this chapter. There's also a female application. This is the part where I'm going to have to dodge some darts. Ladies, just stay with me for a minute. Okay? It could get ugly in here. A female application. It may be bugging some of you girls, some of you ladies, but there's a distinction made between sons and daughters in this chapter. That the son who's born, the woman's only unclean for seven days. But the daughter who's born, she's unclean for 14 days. Actually, there's an extension, because beyond the seven days, it's another 33 for a woman who has a son. So a total of 40 days of purification before the sin offering can be brought, before they can be clean again. Total 40 days for a son, 80 days for a daughter. And people look at stuff like that and they go, well, that's it. That's the Bible. It's a male chauvinistic thing. It's, it has nothing to do with women. And especially for a, a women's liberty, it, it just doesn't fit. I'll tell you what. There's a women's liberation found in Scripture you cannot find in our culture today. It is much greater than what you've heard from different feminist movements. But let's stir this up just a little bit more. Let's go to another controversial verse in the Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. I'm just going to read it to you. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Can I hear it? Amen. Men. It was the woman who was deceived. Which is a nice way of saying saved 
Sozo is the word in the Greek. Women will be saved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. A woman's got to have a baby to be saved? That's not what it's saying. Well, that's what you just read. Women will be saved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Let me clear this up for you. Childbirth has nothing to do with a woman's earning salvation. Keeping the woman barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen does not save her. As a matter of fact, men, it's going to make life a little tougher for you. Okay? I'll let you know that. A woman's own salvation is not thrown into question even when she brings a little sinner into the world. That's all a woman can bring into the world is a sinful creature. No woman has the perfect, priceless, innocent babe to hold up before the Lord save Mary herself. She was the only one. And it wasn't because of her purity. Jesus was the only innocent. But it was through a woman, again, it was through a woman that a Savior came into the world. No man had anything to do with that. But Paul is saying right here, in light of Leviticus 12, that childbirth does not bring a stain of sin on a woman of faith. Does that make sense to you? Listen again when he says, Women will be saved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith, love, sanctity, with self-restraint. There is a, a stain of sin that happens. And for the Jewish mind, this would make sense. It would be easy to follow. When a woman has a child, she has to bring the, the sin offering. Because she has brought into the world a being with a sin nature. But what Paul is saying, transferring this now into Christian thinking, into the new covenant of Jesus, he's saying, hey, a woman of faith doesn't need to bring a sin offering. A woman of faith is saved, even in childbirth. Even when having a sinful creature, bringing a sinful being into the world, the woman is still saved if she's a woman of faith. It has nothing to do with what you do. It has to do with what you believe. Are you a person of faith? That's where salvation is bound up. In faith. Not in the physical. But he did carve out a distinction for women. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Listen, Genesis 3.6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And something happened to the state of womanhood when Eve took that dreadful bite. Genesis 3.16 God says to the woman I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth In pain you will bring forth children There's more and this is a curse Listen to me A curse that God placed on woman Yet your desire will be for your husband And he will rule over you This is not God's plan This was God's curse And in our marriages And in our relationships, we need to understand there's a vast difference between a plan and a curse. God's plan we see in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Adam and Eve, side by side, an equality before the Lord, walking with the Lord in intimacy, in innocence, in purity. That's God's plan. But a woman who will be ruled over by her husband was not God's plan. It was God's curse. God's curse. But here's what I want you ladies to hear. In Jesus, the curse is lifted. In Jesus, the curse is gone. 
In Jesus, the curse has no application to your life anymore. True women's liberation happened when Jesus died on the cross and you intended faith. You proclaimed faith in Him. Galatians 3.13 tells us Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us, as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And because of that, Paul declares women's liberation. Galatians 3.28, there is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. See the difference? Isn't that awesome? Ladies, that Eve was deceived. The man wasn't. The woman was. And because she was deceived, God said, there's a curse. And this is going to affect all your sisters, Eve. But Jesus came to remove the curse. Now, gentlemen, before you patronize the ladies on the arm and welcome them back into the club, you're not off the hook. Because there is a male application as well. There is only one reason why the woman's days of uncleanness were shortened for a male child. And it was circumcision. It was circumcision. Leviticus 12.3, God declared on the eighth day, you must deal with the flesh. The whole picture of circumcision. And again, the Jewish people would be much more comfortable with talking about this because they understood it. We don't so much and we talk when the word circumcision comes up and we kind of, you know, get embarrassed. Circumcision was dealing with the flesh in the most incredible way. I mean, if God wanted to get our attention, men... What better way to do it? <laughs> to deal with the flesh. That you will cut off the foreskin. Deal with the flesh. Now listen to this. 1 Timothy 2.14 tells us, It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman who was deceived. And before the men go, Yeah, we have to go, Oh, she was deceived. Adam wasn't. Adam's sin was blatant. Adam chose to sin. Adam knew what he was doing. Eve did not. Eve was caught up in the moment. The serpent got hold of her and drove her in a direction and she followed along and she was deceived. And we don't even know, and this, you know, is a discussion I think for us to have with Adam and Eve someday. We don't even know exactly how it all played out. God told Adam in Genesis chapter 1 not to eat of the fruit of that particular tree. Eve wasn't there at the time. So either Adam failed in his responsibility to tell Eve, or she didn't completely understand it, but Paul says she was deceived. Adam knew better. He knew better. He knew what he was doing decisively. Genesis 3, 6, Eve also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. No, I'm not going to say it. He ate decisively. He chose it. He knew what he was doing. Okay, I'm going to say it. Any man approached by a naked woman with fruit is going to have a hard time with it, okay? <laughs> Flip in your Bible to Romans chapter 5. We're almost done. <laughs> this is why we let the kids go out. Romans chapter 5. Again, let me repeat to you, man is not a sinner because he sins. Man sins because he is a sinner. Man sins because he is a sinner. It is in his nature to do so. Adam chose sin. He rebelled blatantly, openly. It was his choice to do so. But again in Christ, if the tables are turned. Romans chapter 5. Beginning in verse 12, just follow along with me. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, 
So death spread to all men because all sin. That little phrase there, because all sin is very important, because it's not Adam's sin that condemns you. Adam's sin brought death into the world. Granted, Adam's sin started the ball rolling there. We died because of Adam's sin. But we also are sinful because all sin. And we would say just like Adam and just like Eve, place any two of us in the garden, start the whole ball over again, and we would do the same thing because we have a sin nature. We are of the flesh. Verse 13, until the law, sin was in the world. But sin was not imputed or understood or known where there is no law. Verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. What does that mean? Adam is a type of him who is to come. It's just saying, Paul is saying, in the same way that Adam introduced sin and death into the world, so one man, Christ, introduced grace and life into the world. That sin and death becomes the one man is tragic, but that grace and life comes through Jesus is wonderful. It's eternal. And it's God's plan to draw us back to save us once again. This whole heavy concept of the depravity of man makes me love Jesus even more. It makes me more impressed that God would look at me and look at my nature and my decisions to sin and still choose me and still love me and still die for me. It's again that, that quote, Andrew Bernard, the sense of sin renders Jesus precious to the soul. Now look back in verse 6 of Romans chapter 5. While we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were in the sin nature, while we were sinning, while there was nothing in the world we could do about it, while all our works were falling flat, while sin was the thing, Christ died. Christ died for the ungodly. Paul goes on, driving the point home, one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if we were enemies, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son... Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Verse 11, and not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. I am born with an ugly, corruptible sin nature. But this throws brilliant new light on the words of Jesus when he says, you need to be born again. You were born in the flesh. But you need to be born of the Spirit. John 3, 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, speaking of physical birth, and the Spirit, speaking of spiritual birth, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's how we come into the world. Flesh. Sin nature. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Male, female makes no difference. All are sinners. But all become one in Christ Jesus. All are saved in Christ Jesus. All are born into a new eternal inheritance in Christ Jesus. All are clean in Christ Jesus. He is our sin offering. 
He is the one who cleanses us right down to our blood. And if you're not in Christ today, if you're not sure that you're saved from your sin nature, the cleansing begins with a very simple step. I'm going to read you a verse. Listen to what Paul says. Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul says, For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed.